Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the team will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4. As Peter Lighthart has mentioned on these episodes over the last couple of weeks, the big announcement right now is that the Theopolis app has been updated and refreshed. If you already have our app, go ahead and update that, and you'll want to sign up for an account at app.theopolisinstitute.com. There is a little bit of a monthly paywall. That'll make sure you have access to all of our work at all times, including lectures and the works of James Jordan and Peter Lightheart, Theopolis classes, and much more. We've actually got ebooks on the app, and this week we released Three New Eyes by James Jordan, so that you can have that in ebook form at all times. We hope this app is a blessing to you and your family for many years to come, and we hope you check it out. Again, that's app.theopolisinstitute.com. I've got a link in the show notes for you, and if you already have our app, all you have to do is update and then sign up from there. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you, as always, so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Deuteronomy chapter 4. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and we'll be editing and smoothing everything out so that it gets to you in a good form. We're in the middle of a series, at the beginning of a series, rather, of uh, studies in the book of Deuteronomy, and we've looked at uh, some general things about the book of Deuteronomy and then have covered the first three chapters of the book, and we're heading into chapter four today. And in this episode, we're going to cover most of chapter four for reasons that I'll explain momentarily. Chapter four, uh, the end of chapter four, the last five or six verses of chapter four really belong with the following chapter rather than with chapter four itself. So we'll look at uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 43 or so. This is a really complex chapter. There are a lot of moving parts, a lot of things that are introduced that seem to be introduced, dropped, reintroduced. The way that things develop and the the way that the chapter moves is uh, somewhat difficult to discern. Uh, And uh, I think it's, I've also had some trouble figuring out exactly how chapter four fits into the sequence of things. Maybe we can make some progress in understanding that, how chapter four fits into the whole of Deuteronomy. But uh, just to give an, give an indication of the kinds of things we'll be talking about in the next hour, there are many general exhortations from Moses to Israel to keep the commandments, to guard them, not to forget them, not to forget what they received and saw at uh, Horeb on Mount Sinai. So there's these general exhortations to keep the commandments. Then there's uh, a number of places, the central part of the chapter really is concerned with the second word, that is, thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or is that is in the water under the earth. Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy 4, is a section of it that's one of the most expansive discussions and treatments of that commandment that we have in in the entire Bible. So that's one of the themes that's running through, but it's not sustained as kind of introduced and then dropped and then brought up again and then elaborated in a certain way, then brought up again in a different way. Uh, there's a couple of sections of the chapter that talk about the uniqueness of Israel, the uniqueness of Israel's law. Uh, and one of the, the central uniqueness of Israel is the unique relationship they have with Yahweh. 
Uh, and so there's also some uh, exhortations and reminders at the end of the chapter. Moses is reminding the people about what Yahweh has done that's utterly unique among all the gods. And the historical experience of Israel is utterly, utterly, utterly unique among all the peoples. And then there's also shifting time frames. There's uh, the exhortations are uh, addressed to the second generation of the Exodus. This is the Israel that's emerged from the death of the first Israel. Israel has died in the wilderness, and this is now a new Israel that Moses is addressing. So he's speaking to them today, this day. Uh, they have to uh, guard the commandments today. But then there are sections of the chapter that look forward. There are prophetic sections that look forward to the exile and the return. There's retrospective sections that go back all the way to the creation. Uh, Moses says, go back to the, the first time uh, and re remember and think about what has happened in the first time. Is there anything like what you've experienced? So there's a variety of different time frames that are involved in the chapter. In spite of that, I, I do think that uh, there's a uh, the chapter hangs together structurally in certain respects. One way to see that is by looking at verse 1 and verse 40. The chapter begins with this, and now Israel, hear or listen to the statutes and the judgments which I'm teaching you to perform or teaching you to do in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And then in verse 40, you basically have a resumption of those same terms and those same the same thing. Uh, verse 40 says, you are you shall keep, guard his statues. So the word guard is a key word throughout the chapter, first introduced in verse 2, and now it's brought up again in chapter 40, verse 40 rather. So you shall guard the commandments, statutes and commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you, that it may be good, uh, and you live in the land. He mentioned living in the land at the beginning of the chapter. Now he's speaking of that again. Uh, the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that phrasing is comes at the end of verse 1 and also at the end of verse 40. And so we have verses 1 and 40 that form a frame around the intervening sections. Uh, and then verse 41 begins something new. It uh, talks about Moses goes to the third person. It's no longer Moses speaking, but Moses sets apart three cities in the Transjordan on the east side of the Jordan as cities of refuge. So we have this, we have this kind of neat inclusio in verses 1 and 40, and then within that, the internal organization, at least the central part, is uh, organized around uh, several exhortations about uh, guarding lest something happens. Uh, uh, the, the Hebrew word for guard is shamar. Uh, it's the word that's uh, it's part of the command that God gives to Adam in the garden. Adam in the garden is supposed to guard the garden and to serve it, shamar and avad, uh, guard and serve the garden. Uh, guarding has been an important theme in the book of Numbers. It's brought up repeatedly here in uh, chapters 4 and 5. And uh, in verses 9 through 31, the kind of central section of chapter 4, uh, there are three sections that are that are each that each begin with the exhortation to guard. So in verse 9, there's guard lest you forget. Uh, guard your hearts, guard your souls so that you don't forget what you've heard or forget what you've seen. Uh, then verse 15 goes back to that same verb, guard, shamar, guard lest you make a graven image. And that's uh, based on what he's just said in the previous section, as I'll mention in a moment. And then again in verse 23, guard, shamar, lest you forget. So that guard lest you forget is found in both uh, verses 
9 and 23, and there are other parallels between those sections. And the, the sequence seems to be the three guarding sections, guard lest you forget what you saw on Sinai, and specifically what you did not see. You did not see any form. You just heard a voice from the fire. Guard that memory. And as you guard that memory, protect yourself and guard yourself so that you don't make an image. You don't make an image because of what you remember from Sinai. You didn't see an image, so you don't make one. And then you go back to uh, the third uh, the third section, beginning verse 23, guard lest you forget and make uh, an image. So in that case, forgetting what you saw specifically takes the form of making an image uh, or a likeness that you're trying to, uh, and, and, and using that as a, uh, for acts of worship and veneration. And so you have this frame in verses 1 through 1 and 40. You have uh, verses 9 through 31 that are organized around these three exhortations to guard in verses 9, 15, and 23. Uh, and then uh, the other sections that surround that central, <clears throat> that central section uh, have to do with the, the God's incomparability. Uh, so verses 5 through 8, God's law is incomparable. What nation has a law like Israel that's so just? Even the, even the Gentiles are going to recognize that. Uh, and then verses 32 through 39, God reminds Israel of what he's done and how unique the Exodus and uh, the uh, Sinai covenant, how unique those are in uh, the entire annals, uh, annals of human history and the entire annals, annals of uh, creation history. So those two sections kind of frame the central part, which has to do with guarding. So in spite of the fact that we're dealing with a bunch of a bunch of themes that are there's, there's a lot of balls in the air in chapter four, but it does have this kind of organization to it that you, you can see that there's a there's a coherence to it uh, in the form that we have it. That's a very helpful um, intro, I think, Peter, especially about the um, yeah the moving parts. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me as I was thinking through it about its um, uh, coherence is. Uh, the kind of the centrality of, of the word and and the way in which the word connects things together. Um, you, you've got, as you say, stuff about laws in general, and then very specific prohibitions of idolatry and of, of making things in God's um, image. And it, it just seems to me that this very much revolves around verse um, twelve. You heard the sound of of words, but saw no form that there was only a voice you know the the um the statutes here are just very explicitly objects of divine revelation aren't they they're not like proverb type things that you can kind of almost infer empirically from experience the, the, these are kind of very directly given statutes of god and and the fact that they were spoken without a form but there was only a voice then just leads very naturally onto the prohibition of making um images and so forth and so i, I just wonder if there's something um uh that the centrality of the spoken word is doing in, in connecting all this together yeah i think that's exactly right because the the chapter explicitly contrasts what israel did not see uh verse uh, 12 yahweh spoke to you from the midst of the fire you heard the sound of words but you saw no form only a voice so there's an ex explicit contrast between the lack of a form, and that becomes, verse 12 becomes kind of the background rationale for not making images and instead devoting yourself to the word. But there's this uh, contrast between the ear and the eye, between 
words and images that uh, I think does that's a major that's a major structuring theme of the whole chapter. One of the yeah, things that I think is noticeable about this chapter is the emphasis that um, is introduced here. It's 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 found throughout Deuteronomy, uh, but it's uh, it's it's unique to Deuteronomy within the Pentateuch, and that is an emphasis on Moses as teacher. Moses is the the mediator of God's word in Exodus. He's the one who sees the pattern on the mountain and brings that down so that Israel can build the tabernacle. He's the one who to whom the Lord speaks in the book of Leviticus. He's the leader of Israel as they move through the wilderness in Numbers. But once you get to Deuteronomy, it's Moses as teacher that comes to the fore. That verb is used, teaching is used in the first verse here of chapter four. Uh, and it's used a few other times in the chapter, but the whole, the entire chapter is kind of organized on the around the fact that Moses is established and authorized by Yahweh as a te- as the teacher of Israel. What he's teaching Israel is all the things that he's saying, obviously, but specifically he's reminding them, part of the teaching is reminding them of what they s- happened at Sinai. Part of the teaching is the actual communication of statutes and commandments, not just that Israel can know them and uh, have them, but there's a constant, uh, there's an, uh, uh, the, the sequence is teach that you may do, teach that you may perform. So Moses' teaching has a, a pragmatic aim, not just an intellectual cognitive aim. He's trying, to, he's trying to teach the people so that they do things. And one of the things that they're supposed to do, verse 10 tells us, is they're supposed to receive the words that Moses gives them. They're supposed to learn to fear the Lord by listening to the words that Moses speaks so that they themselves might teach their sons the and the sons of their sons uh, in verse 10. So there's a, a teach in order to do, and part of the doing that Israel uh, is supposed to perform is teaching the next generation. And obviously that's that's going to supposed to continue on after Moses. The generation that is currently being taught is supposed to be taught so that they become teachers of the next generation and so on and so on as long as Israel exists. But it just uh, has, I think there's a, it shows how profoundly important faithful teaching is among the people of God. Without that teaching, you don't have guidance for what to do. Without that teaching, you don't have, unless people are taught, they can't become teachers so that they can teach a new generation. Uh, and if you don't have that that heritage, that tradition passed on from generation to generation, then Israel they forget, um, and they end up in exile, as Moses warns later. The singling out of the events of um, associated with Baal of Peor um, is quite interesting here. If we go back to the book of Numbers in chapter 25, we read about the rebellion of the people with Baal Peor and the way in which 24,000 people died and Phineas arrested the, the plague by... Um, striking the couple through the heart. It seems interesting to me that that story within the context of numbers represents something of a a crisis for the whole nation. And it's after that, that they need to regroup. They need to take the second census. They need to go through all these different things in preparation for chapter 31, where you have the vengeance against the Midianites followed by the reaffirmation of everything and the settling in the land, or preparations for settling in the land. And at the start of the book, you have a tribe of Simeon with 59 
around 59,000, I think it is. And at the end, you only have 22,000. It seems that almost all the casualties came from the tribe of Simeon and the leader, the person who was stabbed or killed by, um, by Phineas was one of the princes of the um, tribe of Simeon. And so that crisis um, for Moses here represents a, a moment where Israel had to um, face up to its sin, deal with that sin, and then to move forward. And the judgment that occurred then is very similar to maybe the judgment that occurred at um, Sinai earlier in the story of the of the Exodus, where there was this signal judgment upon a great number of people executed by the Levites. And here we have another Levite leading in judgment and a great um, death toll for the people. And now that provides an impetus for regrouping and reestablishing the priorities and their identity as a people who are truly going to follow the Lord, who are going to carry out the vow that they have made and go through with the um, judgment upon Midian and then entering into the land. And so the emphasis upon the event within this context seems quite fitting. And yet it's not necessarily an event to which we give enough attention within our accounts of the Exodus. That, that's good. It's, it's also fitting uh, with what follows. So in verse three, your eyes saw everything that the Lord did or Yahweh did at Baal Peor. And then what follows in verses four through eight is a setting before Israel, the proper relationship with the other nations. At Baal Peor, they followed the lead of Midian and Moab. They were seduced by them and disobeyed God and you know, fell into idolatry. Um, but if they remember what happened as a result of that and how, how um, as you said, Alistair, how uh, there was this great judgment uh, and they needed to start over again, in a sense, um, if, if they remember that and, and take the proper relationship with the nations, uh, then keep my statutes, keep my rules, um, and that'll be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of all the peoples. And so you will be a model to others. You won't look to others as the model of your behavior. So um, it makes sense to me that Baal Peor is mentioned here and the events of Baal, uh, that happened there because it was a reversal of God's intended order of influence uh, with regard to Israel and the nations. Yeah, and it's quite striking, isn't it, that the incident that um, Baal Peor here is seen almost as a, a kind of refining um, thing. So in, in verse 4, after it talks about the destruction of those who followed uh, that Baal, you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. And it struck me the same thing when it was talking about the generation that fell in the wilderness, that while obviously as readers, you know, we want Israel to grow and become fruitful and, and numerous because that's part of what the Lord has instructed and promised. Um, in fact, at the same time, there's this, this purging going on. And as numbers are lost, it, it's a purifying work that's taking place. 
Yeah, that's really helpful, Jeff and uh, James. Uh, I, the uh, contrast between Bail Peor and what follows is, yeah, very striking. And it, it does indicate that Israel's mission, we say this a lot around Theopolis, but Israel's mission has always been directed outside of itself to the Gentiles. And uh, even under the law, we can see that Gentile-facing part of Israel, that Gentile-facing mission of Israel more prominently uh, in the in the days of Solomon, for example, who is a man of wisdom and discernment, the, the kind of royal language that uh, Moses uses here, that's, what, that's the language to describe Solomon's wisdom. Or even in the exile, when Israel scattered through the nations, but then you have these uh, individual Jews who rise to prominence, but that's already prepared when, even under the law, when Israel is somewhat more enclosed and separated off from the Gentiles, the whole aim of giving the law, or one of the aims of giving the law, is that Israel would do it, and that by doing it, they could become a a model to the nations, so that the nations will see the justice of Israel's law, the greatness of Israel's God. The greatness of Israel's situation, the uniqueness of Israel's situation to have a God as near as Yahweh is in verse 7, uh, and to become that kind of model. And it reminds me, Jeff, of the things you pointed out in the in the book of Acts when we went through Acts. Uh, and you've taught on this uh, a lot over the years of how uh, when, as as the apostles go through the, the Roman Empire, they encounter various Jewish characters who are in these positions of prominence, that they, they have they have a kind of wisdom to advise rulers. We see this during the exile and then into their New Testament. They have a kind of wisdom to the to advise rulers that comes out of their uh, meditation on the Torah. And that's not that's not an accident. That's part of the that's part of the intention of Torah that it has that kind of it has that kind of aim. I'd be intrigued to get your um, thoughts on exactly what is in mind with this nearness. Um, of God. So where are we? Um, by verse six onwards, particularly seven, you know, by um, seeing Israel keeping the law, the nations are, are meant to kind of exclaim and be struck by how near God is um, to them. And, and he's there whenever uh, the Israelites call upon him. And, and yeah, I, I was just trying to think about what, what about Israel's existence might have um been meant to produce that reaction and to make them kind of struck by the nearness of God. And one thing I wondered about was, I mean, obviously, when the Lord is in the midst of the camp in uh, Leviticus, particularly, there are all sorts of injunctions and obligations that come um, alongside that. And I just wonder if part of it is, is the sense in which um, a knowledge of God was to permeate every aspect of Israel's society, um, what they wore, what they ate, how they grew crops, how they treated their wives, husbands, families, etc. And I wondered if, if that was something that was meant to speak to um, the nations about the nearness of God and if, if that would have been unusual um, in Kind of, you know, the the in the context of Canaan and the way in which the worship of a, de- of a deity might generally have be, been um, manifest in a society. But I, I'd be intrigued to hear your thoughts on all that. Yeah, one of the articles that I looked at in preparation confirms that suggestion that you make, or at least uh, argues along the same lines, James. That the, this is there's a uniqueness to Israel's 
to the kind of intimacy, let me put it that way, there's a, a uniqueness to the kind of intimacy that Israel has with Yahweh. Uh, and it's linked up in this, this article, links it up with the prohibition of images, because the intimacy or the proximity, the imminence of the God in uh, most forms of paganism would be linked with the image as the dwelling place of the God, their various rites. Uh, when an image is placed in a temple, when an image is set up, there are various rites that bring it to life, that um, make it a, a dwelling place and an image, and not just an image of the God, but a a sign of the Lord, of the God's presence. But that's all focused on the image that's in the sanctuary. And Israel's prohibited from doing that. So they're, the intimacy that they have is not of the same sort that a pagan of the same time would expect. It's the intimacy of a living God, a God who can't be captured and fixed by images, uh, and a God who is repeatedly uh, linked up with fire and smoke and uh, and uh, clouds and even identifies himself, uh, Moses identifies him as a consuming fire in verse 24. So it's the the liveliness and the power of the living God and their intimacy with that. Uh, that this article was suggesting. And the, and the ironic contrast is if they tried to follow the, it, the nations and try to fix that intimacy by setting up images, fix that intimacy in a traditional way, in other words, then the result will be that they'll be scattered. The result will be the opposite of intimacy. So they keep the Lord near only by refusing to make images. And he made the point also that you made, James, that uh, there's a uh, there's a uniqueness in the way that Israel is uh, to keep the law and uh, their uh, their intimacy and their devotion to the, their God is not shown in devotion, only in cultic devotion. They they have cultic and ritual acts of devotion, but it it spreads out and permeates everything, and that's that's part of the uniqueness of Israel's uh, of Israel's life. It is somewhat counterintuitive because in ancient Near Eastern nations would be able to claim that their God is very near because look, there's the image, there's the, the Asherah pole, there's the, there's the representation of the God and he's right there with us. Um, and yet for Israel, you don't see God. And this is emphasized all through here. You hear him, uh, you hear his statutes and you keep his statutes and his laws. It seems like Israel's if Israel's a claim to be exceptional, uh, it's not tied to idols, as Peter just said, not tied to visual images, or even their power or, uh, or, or size. It's tied to the, the Torah. God is near to Israel in the form of the Torah being lived out. And the result of that is the people living, the people experiencing the blessing of God, as we'll see later in Deuteronomy, uh, the blessings are going to flow uh, if they're obedient. They're going to live in the land. They're going to possess the land. And and if they keep all the comprehensive kind of rules and regulations and rituals that God has given them, then uh, that's going to be a sign that the Lord is very near to him. And, and, and this may relate also to the fact that, um, you know, um, the nearness of a god to a, a nation like Ammon or Moab, for them, it would be 
whether they're prosperous, whether they're powerful, whether their land is fertile or not. And they're going to look at Israel and see that all those things are true for them. They're going to have fertile land. They're going to have uh, a prosperous and populous uh, culture. Uh, and yet it's, it's not because they have an image in the center of their culture, but rather they have the law, the words, the, the words of Yahweh, which they are obeying, which they're doing. Yeah, Jeff, I was going to make a similar point, but for me, what particularly comes out is just there's something so paradoxical about the idea of making um, an image to attain nearness, isn't there? Because you build an image and then you can say, great, look, it's over there. My God is, is over there. But of course, as soon as you build an image, you can then get away from it sort of thing, you know, and um, you're no longer next to it and you're distant from it. And it just seems that so much of that is um, uh, captured here. That's good that you could add that to the idle polemics of Isaiah that you uh, you form an image and then uh, and then you can walk away and or you can store it in a closet or something. There's an interesting passage in Numbers 23 in Balaam's first oracle, where he talks about Israel as follows: For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone, and not counting itself among the nations. There is a sense within um, that passage that Israel is not actually one of the peoples. Um, in Or if they are one of the peoples, they're certainly unique among them. And Israel's distinction as a nation seems to be inseparable from the fact that they are a people created by God in a response in part to the creation of the other nations um, largely through the separation and the judgment of Babel and through other sorts of judgments and acts by which these nations were formed. Israel, however, somehow stands alone. And the character of Israel's identity as a set-apart people and a unique people is very much connected with the fact that their God is not one of the gods. Um, God is set apart. God is unique. And going through this, I think we can have a sense of Israel's existence as a nation depending upon its worship of the Lord. If they did not have a central site of worship, they would fracture along geographical lines. We can easily imagine, as we see in um, parts of scripture, the fault line of the Jordan separating the Transjordanian tribes from the tribes within the promised land proper, or the north and the south of the land dividing from each other, as they did during the period of the later kingdom. We also have fractures along other lines where the nation might just disappear into their own local regions without their central site of worship, without the presence of the Levites in all these different places, bringing the nation together and dispersed among the nation, drawing its attention into the center, it would be easy for them just to go off into their own um, local um, parochial forms of idolatry. And so it's the worship of the Lord that really causes the nation to hang together. And without that, the nation ceases to exist. Um, and what we see, I think, in the history of Israel is as it loses its regard for the Lord, the actual glue that makes it operate as a nation, that 
starts to lose its stickiness because the nation does not, it makes sense. It doesn't exist apart from the fact that the Lord is at its center and the people are serving, trusting the Lord, and they are living according to the glue by which he wants them to stick together, which includes things like the Levites, includes a central site of worship. It includes one tribe set apart as a ruling tribe over the others. And all these sorts of things without the presence of the Lord at the heart don't work. Yeah. Now that's, that's fascinating, Alistair. I think um, looking at uh, Arnold's commentary on this, when you, when you look at verse one, uh, he and, he translates um, statutes and rules to be rituals uh, and what does he say? Rituals and judgments. Of course, judgments is pretty clear at Mishpatim, uh, but the rituals, Hakim, Hakim, um, is, and that what that do, reason it, that I like that, and it's all through here. He, he does this. It's rituals and and judgments. That reminds you that this is these are not just a lot of uh, civil laws, civil uh, ordinances, or even ordinances that have to do with just, you know, everyday behavior. Obviously, that's the case. But also the rituals, uh, the religious rituals, the rituals uh, that have to, to do with the tabernacle and temple and the Levites and the sacrifices and the food laws and, and all that. So that this is a comprehensive kind of statement. And if with without translating if you don't translate that with rituals and judgment, you might get the wrong impression. This is this is the totality of the instruction, the Torah that God has given to Israel, um, and not just um, the moral commandments. We might say it includes everything, and and when they're when they're obedient to all of that, then it's evident that God is near to them and blesses them and causes them to live. Yeah, I found that very helpful as well, Alistair, particularly the um, uh, idea of the unity of God being something that keeps them together. And in a sense, that emphasizes his nearness. I, I was looking through um, verse 7 here. I, I have in my translation, uh, what great nation is there that has um, a God so near to it as the Lord, our God. But seems to me much more natural to, to translate that as that that has gods so near to it because there's a there's a plural um adjective elohim krovim um like near near gods um and you know just just looking through the old testament titles there's you know a bottle of peor there's bottle gad there's bottle hamon and all sorts of different uh, bowls and so on and yet the Lord your God is is one. That unity is is as you say meant to be the the glue of of the um, nation. And it, it seems interesting that then in verse seven there is that um, uh, contrast between the gods uh, and and the God of Israel. Well, here's a question, and I wonder how you guys would answer this. Um, if you look at uh, four verse eleven, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain burned with fire. The Lord spoke to you. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. That that is repeated numerous times in this sermon by Moses. You saw no form. 
And of course, in, in the middle of the sermon, you've got this list of all these created things beginning in verse 15, 16, that you can't, can't represent God uh, by means of any of the things in creation. God is above all that. He's, he's not to be represented that way. And yet at the same time in Exodus 24, you have Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel ascend up the mountain. And it says they saw the God of Israel and under his feet was this sapphire sea. And I'm wondering how to, how to reconcile those things, because clearly those select individuals up on the mountain saw some sort of form. form. Of course, the people did not, but they saw something. Um, I'm not, I don't know that that's incredibly significant. I just couldn't help thinking of it when I was reading through this passage. Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. I don't have a I don't have a clear answer to that. I mean, even just to restate the question in a somewhat different form, uh, if you think of the the visual phenomena of Sinai, which Moses describes here, there is a kind of form to fire, and to cloud and to gloom. It's a changing and shifting form, but there is some visual shape to that. You can you can depict fire. Uh, visually, it as a visual phenomenon, and so there is some visual form that's being manifested. But yeah, it sounds like uh, the Exodus twenty-four passage sounds much more like a uh, a kind of anthrop- anthrop- anthropomorphized form that there's a there's a kind of humanoid form as there as there sometimes is in throughout the Old Testament when you know when uh, when people get close to the cloud. They look into the cloud and they see uh, the figure of a man, like Ezekiel does, or sometimes uh, a couple of times Daniel sees figures that are kind of molten metal, but they have human shape to them. Uh, and that seems like what you're seeing in what the what the elders and priests and Moses are seeing in Exodus 24. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure how to how to make that uh, how to reconcile that with what's what's said here. I wanted to go in a slightly different direction, asking quite, uh, asking the question about what is it that makes the image such a images such a threat, and why the Lord is so hostile to them. Uh, and a couple of things that I think come out here. One of them is uh, evident in verse twenty-three. That's the beginning of the these third, the third of these sections that begin with the verb shamar. Guard yourselves, lest you forget. And what there's not to forget is the covenant. Uh, and if they forget the covenant, the way that that forgetfulness expresses itself is by making an image. As the verse goes on, lest you forget uh, the covenant which Yahweh your God made and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything and so on. So making an image is a violation of the covenant. It's an expression of forgetfulness of the covenant. And I, I thought that uh, if you think of uh, the covenant by analogy with marriage, marriage is a a covenant bond between two living persons. Uh, and if you insert an image uh, between those persons as the mediator between those persons, then there's a, there's a, uh, uh, that's, that's a violation of the relationship. You know, for Israel to devote itself to images is a kind of, is a kind of pornography in a sense. If she's supposed to be devoted to her husband, but she, instead she's making pictures of her husband and she's devoted to those, 
that's defection from the living person. Uh, and it's, a, as I say, a kind of pornography where you're, you're substituting this lifeless fixed form for the image or, or for the uh, person. The other thing that uh, struck me was the language of verses 16 and following. After you have the, this statement of the second word, don't make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure. And then it goes on and lists a bunch of things that are not, they're not to make images, likenesses of male or female animal that's on the earth. Winged bird is going through the cosmos uh, from uh, man down to fish in the sea. You're not to make any likeness. Uh, but the word that's used throughout there that's translated here as likeness uh, is the word tabnet. Uh, that's in verse 16 and 16 through 18. It's used uh, five times maybe. Um, the word tabnet, which is the word that's used in Exodus to describe the form, the pattern that Moses sees on the mountain. He sees the tabnet of the tabernacle. He sees the heavenly sanctuary, and then he brings that uh, vision down to earth, and Israel builds a tabernacle according to the pattern that Moses saw on the mountain. And that's the word that's being used here for these images. If you make a graven image, then you're making a tabnet of a male or female, or a tabnet of an animal, which uh, could mean simply that the tabnet is a, uh, is a copy of some living thing, some actual thing, and the tabnet of a, a male or female is a copy of an actual living male or female. Uh, but the usage elsewhere suggests that it's not just a copy, but it's also uh, a pattern that's shaping something else. That's what the tabnet means, the tabnet on the mountaintop. So uh, uh, it, there seems to be an implication that, uh, uh, that, that idols are not simply dangerous because they uh, try to capture a living being, a living God, or they are betrayals of the living relationship that they have in the covenant, but also for the kind of formative power that idols have. Uh, and we, we picked this up in, in various idol polemics uh, in, in the Psalms a couple of times. It lists all of the, uh, the idols don't, they have eyes, but they can't see it. They have ears, but can't hear. They have hands, but they can't use them. They can't have feet, but they can't walk. So shall all those who make them, so shall be all those who make them. If you worship idols, they become like the idols. So the idols become kind of a pattern that shapes and determines the life of their worshipers. So that's part of the reason why the Lord forbids them uh, is because these, these idols have a, a profound formative power on those who devote themselves to the idols. I think that's really helpful, Peter. So so you're you're thinking of a, a, a tafnit as something that by nature sort of um, uh, by nature, just invites invites itself to be copied or something. Is, is is that right? Yeah, not just a copy, but yeah, something that invites itself to be imitated. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I had a kind of related thought, just thinking about the transition from nineteen to twenty and and onwards, or already from fifteen to nineteen to twenty onwards. So all the things that you're not meant to make um, images um, after, and then it kind of transition slightly unexpectedly you know but the lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of egypt and i was thinking you know what what is brought out of a iron furnace i mean it's, it's often to do with sort of refining in in scripture and i think that idea is, is here but i mean presumably one of the things you bring out of an iron furnace is precisely an, an image you know and I, I wonder if the idea here is that they're not meant to make um images not just because you can't properly make an image of God, but they are meant to be um, image bearers of God themselves. And God has brought them out of Egypt and into um, Canaan in order to bear his 
image to the nations. And so I, I wonder if that reference to the furnace, which is quite unusual, um, it occurs, I'm just looking for it now, um, kind of in Deuteronomy, kind of once in Kings actually quoting that bit in Deuteronomy, very rarely um, elsewhere. And I, I wonder if, if some of that is in there. We thought about this to some degree in our study of Daniel and the story of the fiery furnace, where the image of Nebuchadnezzar is designed to be a sort of Babelic bringing together of all of the peoples and the attempt to melt down the Jews into this um, great image, which is an image of the state. It's an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself as the golden head who wants to be the whole body. But it's also a false image of God. And what we're seeing, I think, in idolatry um, is what you suggest, James, this subversion of the true image of God, which here is presented as um, the people that the Lord is forming for himself out of the nations. And I think another way we might see this is as we're reading through an earlier account of idolatry, the great account of idolatry in Baal Peor, the judgment upon that we discussed earlier, but the events of Exodus 32 and following with the golden calf, there is a sort of parallel between the golden calf, not so much the golden calf and the Lord, perhaps, but the golden calf and Moses. The golden calf is made as a replacement for Moses, as a mediator between God, the higher deity, and the people. And so it's a sort of blast shield that you relate to instead of actually relating to the Lord in the case or through Moses. And then later on in the stories, Moses comes down with a shining face and um, we might see it as horns. Um, we certainly have those in Michelangelo's image of Moses. Moses is the true golden calf. Moses is the one that they were trying to replace. And Moses is the one who um, is representing the image as it should be, the one who um, represents God to the people and the one to whom the people must be conformed and be faithful and faithful to God's word through Moses. And so it seems to me that that point could really be fleshed out in some interesting ways. Yeah, I, de I definitely think that's right, James, that you have, uh, and Alistair, you have the, the contrast between devotion to images and uh, the human constructed images, images made by human hands, and the image of God that's found in human beings, and particularly, as you said, James, in Israel. That's a that's a really interesting connection with the Iron Furnace, and I think that's been that's borne itself out historically. In uh, you know, so, uh, you have iconoclast movements during the Reformation, for example, in Europe, and they're going around at least uh, knocking the faces off of images that are in cathedrals. Uh, sometimes toppling the images entirely, and whether all of that was uh, whether all of that was valid or not, part of the motivation is to uh, eliminate this devotion to these to these dead images. It's a direct attack on the kind of uh, icon iconolatry that uh, Moses is talking about. But I think there's also a uh, there's a kind of justice motivation too that uh, the medieval church devoted so much energy, so much money. Uh, so much uh, time to preserving images and relics and all these other objects of devotion. And the part of the charge was that they were devoting all this, 
all these resources to maintaining these images while neglecting the image of God. Uh, so there's a there's a there is a relationship between iconoclastic, at least at that point in uh, in the West in Western church history, iconoclasm and and a kind of uh, concern for social justice and for the the care of the of the living image of God. I want to go back to Jeff's point because I think that's a curious one. And one thought I've been having is is this: the claim of Christian iconoduels, that is, people who defend the uh, veneration of icons and images uh, in the church, in the Eastern churches in particular. A uh, part of it is uh, based on uh, verse twelve here: uh, you saw no form, you heard only a voice. And the, the argument is, well, what happens when they do see a form? Uh, and they have seen a form. The form of God has appeared in the man, Jesus Christ. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so what uh, what it said in verse 12 no longer applies uh, because now the form has appeared. But the, that that argument changes when you introduce Exodus 24 into the mix, because uh, then you do have a certain kind of form that appears. You could do the same, make the same argument from the passages in Ezekiel and Daniel that I talked about, where there's some kind of human form of God that appears, and that's uh, and yet, even though Moses and the elders of Israel and the priests looked above them and they saw uh, they saw God and they ate and drank and He didn't stretch out His hand against them, uh, the the uh, pavement above His uh, below His feet, uh, they see some form of God. And yet, even though the form is visible there, uh, even even then, uh, making a uh, making a human made form is prohibited. So, uh, introducing that element, this doesn't harmonize the two passages, Jeff. But introducing that seems to undermine one of the one plank of the argument in favor of icons and images. Yeah, um, you went there. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask about that later on, uh, but also notice in. Verse 19, uh, that what's specifically prohibited is making these images uh, so as to bow down to them and serve them. So doing obeisance uh, before them, physically, ritually um, engaging with them. Um, it because you have this, they have this remarkable. Remarkably comprehensive list here uh, before this, uh, and and it's also quite categorical. Uh, there, uh, you, you have this piling on of this Hebrew word "kal," uh, any likeness of any or anything, any bird, any 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 any. It just over and over again. Nothing is allowed, and you might get the idea from reading that. That they couldn't make uh, pictures or or uh, uh, little figurines of anything ever for any purpose whatsoever, and we know that's not the case because there are images woven into the curtain of the tabernacle, and there are going to be bulls that hold up the sea in in the temple, and all sorts of other images. Uh, but the one thing they're not allowed to do is bow down to them and serve them. Uh, and that, again, is a second, that's a second word kind of um, language there, which I think is important to remember. Uh, so that even, even if to take your argument, Peter, and 
kind of extended a little bit with regard to you know Jesus having showed up and we saw him or at least he was he was seen by people and had it was indeed a real human being making a picture of Jesus with his disciples walking through a grain field say plucking heads of uh, of grain and eating them would not necessarily be a violation of this in Deuteronomy 4 or or the second word because uh we're not bowing down to them. We're not serving that. That would be a an appropriate, I think, proper way to depict, whether mentally or visually in art, something that actually happened uh, in a grain field in Palestine when Jesus was there. So, so I, I guess I I wonder this really comprehensive list and this uh, piling on of. Uh, prohibitions, anything, no, nothing, nothing, nothing. I think that needs to be properly situated within the concern of Deuteronomy 4 and of the scriptures as a whole about doing ritual worship uh, before these images. It doesn't necessarily relate to art uh, and education. Yeah, and I think that uh, just to close out the discussion of uh icons and images in in christian devotion uh well I, i'm sure i brought this up when we talked about uh the ten commandments and talked about the second word in a previous uh podcast series and i i, I talk about it in uh my little book on the ten words but um uh, yeah jesus jesus appears the father is shown in the flesh but then jesus disappears and so we're in a we're in this. Uh, this is a point that Jim makes in a different form. Jim Jordan makes in a different form, but so we're in this we're in this situation where uh, that image is no longer with us, where the spirit is present with us. And uh, I've I've often cited uh, the sequence of argument in First John one, where uh, John begins with this very dramatic, very tangible, sensible description of the encounter that they had with the Word of Life. The word of life appeared, and we touched him, and we heard him, and we saw him. Uh, and if you want to have fellowship with him, then you need to have fellowship with us, and you have fellowship with us through the word that we're speaking. That's basically the logic uh, that John gives. It's not that we had this connection, this tangible connection with Jesus, with the living word, the word of life, uh, and therefore, we're providing tangible objects by which you can continue to have contact with that tangible bodily incarnate incarnate word. Uh, rather, the way that you had that kind of contact is by having fellowship with the apostles, and you have fellowship with the apostles by clinging to their word. So even in the New Testament, where uh, Jesus comes and goes, <laughs> and we're in a period of, uh, of uh, the absence of Jesus according to the body, uh, according to his personal body, uh, and in that situation, we're back where Israel was, where we don't see a form and we have a voice, and that's what we're to respond to. Oh, I want to think about the flip side of the prohibition of images a little bit. Um, uh, the, I mentioned this earlier, the, the way that the, uh, uh, the Lord's theophany is described on the mountain. Um, they come to the near foot of a burning mountain. The mountain itself is burning. The mountain has become kind of a gigantic burning bush. Uh, and the description of this is uh, quite dramatic, verse 11. The fire burns to the very heart of the heavens. I don't even know what that means. wonder if you have any thoughts about what that means. And then darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. And I think of um, 
you know, if you if you see pictures of gigantic forest fires or, you know, the factory has exploded and you have these billowing flames going up, but in the billowing flames, you have these uh, this darkness that's mixed in with the flame and this uh, this this kind of undulating movement of darkness and darkness and brightness that are moving and intertwined with each other. That seems to be the the, the way the description works. This is the way that the Lord manifests himself. And then uh, there's this repeated emphasis on the word coming from the midst of the fire. The Lord spoke from the midst of the fire, from the midst of the fire. Uh, then, as I mentioned earlier, verse 24 identifies Yahweh himself as fire. Um, by my count, there were 14 uses of the word fire in Deuteronomy 4 and 5. So it's a it's a major theme, not only the context in which God is in within which God is speaking. But it's uh, it's the fire itself is an image of himself, of his presence, and of his of his character. I sense that there's a great deal to do with that, <laughs> but I'm not sure exactly what. I'm not sure exactly where to go with that uh, with that description. Okay, I'll take a couple of steps since nobody else is taking debate. Um, one of the, one of the one of the bits that is uh, intriguing is the way that uh, fire in verse twenty four is qualified. It's a consuming fire, uh, and the the Hebrew verb is just the normal Hebrew verb for eat. It's an eating fire, so that that uh, conjures up all of the imagery of the Lord's bread, the Lord's food that's put on the altar, uh, the altar as a site of the Lord's presence as a consuming fire, uh, and then that uh, further conjures up the whole ritual of sacrifice, which involves putting uh, dismembered animal parts into the fire so that they can become fire. Fire is a transforming agent, uh, among other things. Uh, and so uh, it would seem like part of the part of the image of, uh, of Yahweh as fire is that he's, he's this enveloping presence into which Israel symbolically, ritually enters. So that they can be transformed. You can you can spin that out into the new covenant where the spirit comes in fire and the uh, apostles themselves become altars with flames of fire on their heads. And uh, they're they're actually enveloped in that fire and transformed by that fire. They're eaten into the consuming fire and become themselves a kind of fire. Uh, and then the mission of the church is kind of a raging fire that goes out. So those are some of the some of the thoughts that I've uh, kind of scattered thoughts I've had about the direction to take this. Peter, I think everything you said there is correct and is fascinating and instructive and and can be drawn from lots of lots of passages in the scriptures, you know, uh, the altar being a, a mini mobile uh, kind of uh, uh, Mount Sinai with the fire on top and the animals ascending into it like Moses ascended into it. All that kind of thing, and and um, the fire on the altar not being so much judgment, but transformation. And yet here in this passage, it seems to be a threat, a warning. So take care. Don't forget the covenant that the Lord your God cut with you. Don't if you make a carved image that God has forbidden you, then Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's a he's a a properly jealous husband. He's brought you out of Egypt to be uh, your husband, to be so that you can be his bride. And I link it back up to with verse twenty. Uh, the Lord has taken you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. 
he's taking you out of that that fiery place of judgment in Egypt and brought you into this land where you're going to live and prosper. And if you start doing what you did in Egypt, and we know that they worshiped idols in Egypt, if you start doing that again, then it, there's going to be a reversion. There's going to be a judgment from me, and, and I'm going to put you back in to the iron furnace. I'm going to, I'm going to consume you uh, because I'm jealous in that way. So uh, it seems to me like this is more of a a a, a threat um, and a warning that they don't revert to the the ways of Egypt and to the life and uh, rituals of Egypt in the land. Yeah, I, I was going in a similar direction, Jeff. I mean, there is a fire that consumes and judges, isn't there? And there's a, at the same time a fire that refines and purifies. And we, we've seen both of those already in this episode, haven't we? And something that almost, to my mind, kind of underscores that is the the kind of phonological similarity with the verb here to burn is um, boer. So, so leverer is the root, and and um, the same verb is leverer is to exposit the the law, which is used in Deuteronomy one and um, twenty seven as well, when Moses expounds the law. The only difference is that one has an i in in the middle and one has an aleph um, in the middle, and this, so they sound certainly now very similar and there just seems to be that double function to the law as a whole moses's um words that he speaks forth are, are going to offer curses and blessings they're going to offer both life and death and and so that kind of fire that can either purify or or consume seems to have an echo in in the kind of the spoken word of of moses um insofar as that can bring either death or, or life yeah, that's really helpful, James. And I, I agree with I agree with both of you. I think that's certainly the accent in this passage. Although I'd I'd bring the destructive and the purifying into closer relationship. There's those are two effects of the same fire. And I, I'm not I don't think I'm disagreeing with you, but purification is in fact is is in fact a form of destruction. So if you if you put uh, if you put uh, iron ore into a furnace. Part of what's happening as it becomes purified as iron is that the impurities and the the alloys are the the uh, whatever is not iron is being is being sloughed off. So the the very fire that purges is the fire that destroys. So I think there's there are different aspects, but I think they're they're very closely related. Uh, and, but I think that the the way that I was going to put it in response to Jeff was that yeah he, they come out of the iron furnace. I think that's a good connection. But it's almost like they're from the furnace into the fire, <laughs> uh, from the you know from the frying pan into the fire. They come out of the iron furnace of Egypt and they're brought to the mountain that's burning. They're at the foot of the mountain. The word at the foot of the mountain almost, I mean, you could translate it as underneath the mountain. They're like uh, and they're they're in the presence of the fire, so they have this that kind of that kind of relationship. The other thing I, I was thinking, but particularly thinking about Yahweh Himself as a fire. And and uh, it it took me again back to the uh, to the burning bush episode, which uh, surely is in the background here because that took place on Horeb. Uh, Moses is describing uh, the later encounter that Israel had with the Lord at Horeb. So those it's the same place. It's the same fire. It's a fire that's burning on the mountain that doesn't consume it, just like the fire of the burning bush. But it's striking that's out of that fire 
that the Lord speaks, I am that I am. He speaks his name, which is an, an intriguing place to talk about. You know, if you, if you think of the traditional understanding of that phrase, God is identifying himself as being itself, but he's doing it from the midst of the most protean element that exists, which is fire. Uh, and he's identifying himself with the fire. So there's some, uh, I'm thinking just in terms of theology proper, there's some uh, some intriguing directions that I've been thinking. I, I find them intriguing. I don't know if you do. Uh, some yeah, intriguing well, directions I'm thinking with regard to what well, what it Peter, means for the Lord to be fire. Um, yeah. And yep. Notice that that's at the end of verse 36, you have yeah. the same kind of thing. Just like out of the burning bush comes the I am, out of the midst of the fire on Mount Sinai comes the words that they heard. Right. It might also be worth relating this to the importance of fire within the life of Israel. So you have, for instance, the fire of the pillar of cloud and fire that lead them through the wilderness. We can think about the fire of the sacrifices that transfigures the sacrifices into smoke or the fire that destroys things outside of the camp. We might think about the fire that is in on the lampstand that gives light within the tabernacle and the ways in which fire is used to bring incense, the sweet smell into the presence of the Lord and the fire that comes out from the presence of the Lord in certain moments of judgment. And so thinking about the Lord as a consuming fire personalizes all of those different activities of Israel's worship and life and its story within the wilderness, that these things are not just um, bare rituals, they're manifestations of their relationship with the Lord, who is um, relating to them um, through this symbol of fire. And so whether they're burning up a sacrifice or whether they're um, preparing incense to go into the presence of the Lord, there's a sense of the connection between the Lord's presence in their midst, the pillar of cloud and fire, with the pillar of um, fire, as it were, coming up from the altar, or the fire that, um, or the pillar of cloud from the incense. And that broader set of analogies, just as we might think of the analogies between the presence of the Lord heralded by the trumpets and then the silver trumpets by which they announced that the war camp is to move off. These sorts of analogies strengthen the sense of the Lord's presence in their midst, and the imagery of fire is given a, a potency that it might not have if we did not have that strong relationship between the Lord and fire in their midst. Al Alistair, what do you make of the fact that that's uh, that old world centrality of fire, as you've described it there, is gone? Um, there's no more literal fire uh, that uh, that we that we deal with that we interact with in in worship in life as Christians anyway ritual ritually we're we're still told in Hebrews that God is a consuming fire quoting this passage here actually but there there's really there's no physical fire anymore that uh, that is part of our ritual. Uh, interaction with the Lord and his people. I think um, more generally, we've discussed in other contexts the way in which the New Testament represents a sort of humanization of things that were 
present within the old covenant worship. And so it's not so much a spiritualization as a humanization. And we are connected with fire. The fire of Pentecost comes down upon the disciples and we are the fire bearers now. Um, I think we can see this also in the depiction of the church as a lampstand. Um, the lampstand with all these human um, bearers of light, I think, is the true fire of the new covenant, the ones who are the bearers of the spirit. And so we don't have those um, symbols of fire and sacrifice and other forms because we are now the bearers of fire. Yeah, that's great. Very good. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.